Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 115, recorded Thursday, May 14th, 2015. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Just one topic on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, looking back over 10 years of Travel Commons. So coming to you from the Travel Commons studios outside of Chicago, Illinois, so no video uncut version like I did the uh, last episode from New Orleans. There's uh, there's no maid service in the Travel Commons studios to tidy it up before the podcast, so uh, so yeah, just 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 audio this time. You know, here in uh, here in the Midwest, we're deep in uh, in the bipolar weather roller coaster that is spring here. Seventy degrees one day, forty degrees the next. Bright sun at ten in the morning, pissing down rain at noon which is as good an explanation as any why Chicago's two airports, O'Hare and Midway, just own the basement of the Department of Transportation's on-time departure rankings. Uh, My travel has been uh, a bit more interesting since the last episode, did a few of my normal runs down in New Orleans, but broke the pattern a bit with travel to Denver and Charlotte. And even uh, one of those runs down in New Orleans, I, uh, I broke the usual down Monday back Thursday routine, At the beginning of April, I flew down Thursday night with my wife and daughter, met up with friends for the French Quarterfest weekend. It's really one of my uh, my favorite music festivals. Free music from local bands, stages and food stands spread just all around the quarter. It's just a bit lower key than the 460,000 people who descended on the New Orleans fairgrounds for Jazz Fest a few weeks back. The big trip, though, was a couple of weeks prior to that when uh, we went to Andalusia, southern Spain, for, for spring break. And we found ourselves there during Semana Santa, Holy Week. Cordoba, Granada, Sevilla, the hill town of Ronda, you know, processions, plural, almost every night. My wife said it was like Tour de France for Catholics. And as a Catholic, I just I couldn't argue. It was pretty full contact. Um, I posted a Vine video of a Granada procession on my Twitter feed and then a couple of minutes of GoPro footage from the last Holy Thursday procession in Sevilla. I put that on the uh, on the Travel Commons Facebook page and the Travel Commons YouTube channel. I've got links to all of these in the show notes uh, at uh, traveltocommons.com. Anyhow, for the Holy Thursday procession, it was uh, it was really close to midnight, after which I think they took like an hour break and then started up the Good Friday processions. We went to bed, and when we got up uh, and went out for, uh, the next morning to grab breakfast, uh, maybe say like around 8.30, um, you know, kind of our usual of uh, cafe con leche and tomato bread topped with, you know, some Iberian ham— the restaurant right by the procession route was just jammed with people who had just finished a procession. It just kept going all day long. It was just amazing. And actually, I guess we keep going. Uh, I just drained my United account for a trip over to Japan next month. And then in September, we're heading over to Scotland so my daughter can start up at the University of St. Andrews. All that being said, I should have enough content to keep Travel Commons rolling into an 11th year. Following up, 
Hey, before we get into the meat of things here, you know, into the core, just just a quick pointer to let everyone know that Travel Commons is available on the Stitcher Radio smartphone app, as well as on SoundCloud. Um, I'll tell you, since since iTunes started handling podcasts back in June 2005, so almost 10 years there. I mean, it was right around sort of episode six or seven of Travel Commons. You know, so ever since they started handling it, it just dominated uh, the Travel Commons download stats up up and over 75%. But now it's sort of uh, it's sort of drifted down, probably now just responsible for a third of the downloads of, as people have gone to, to other methods of uh, of subscribing and listening to uh, uh, to podcasts. So given that, uh, I've sort of expanded the number of channels that uh, the Travel Commons is distributed across. And like I said, Stitcher and uh, and SoundCloud, I've uh, been doing those for about six months, just haven't mentioned it. So just wanted to, wanted to give everybody a, a heads up. So rummaging through the mailbag, back uh, last November in episode 112, Dan Grandwald sent me a pointer to the website To and From the Airport, which is sort of a collation of airport transit options, as you would guess from the title. And and in that episode, I talked about reviewing the O'Hare listing and sending in a few updates and really hearing nothing back. So um, so I was kind of pleasantly surprised toward the end of March, just after the last episode, when I received a note thanking me for my contribution and apologizing for the delay. So whatever issues were happening, you know, back then around updating now seems to have passed and it appears that the site is back to being actively maintained. Tom Brown, a longtime Travel Commons listener, sent a note following up on last episode's riff on Nate Silver's 538 blog post about mass transit times to major U.S. airports. Tom writes, you noted London as the gold standard of public transport out of the airport. I would put it at bronze at best. Decaying infrastructure, not so comfortable trains, and the destination really not so friendly to the business traveler in London. It doesn't help its rankings. Singapore is the best, in my opinion, with Hong Kong number two. Tokyo even ranks above London for to me. Tom, thanks for uh, thanks for that. Expanding our uh, our sample size, expanding the travel common sample size. My my past trips through Hong Kong and Singapore were family vacations, so ended up being late arrivals from the U.S., tired kids, too much luggage, and so ended up opting for taxis instead of mass transit. So I missed the opportunity to add those trains to my personal sample, but I did end up with one of the wackiest cab rides uh, coming back from the uh, Hong Kong airport. It was kind of a hoarder cab. Sort newspapers filling the trunk, tchotchkes all over the dashboard and hanging from the roof. Uh, quite honestly, I don't know how we got four people and four bags into that cab. Uh, and as actually, as I mentioned in the uh, in the prior uh, segment, we'll, we'll be flying in and out of Narita um, at the back half of June. And given the distance and cab fares, we're going to be taking that uh, that Tokyo train at least once, if not twice. So have an opportunity to uh, to experience that one. Now, on our spring break uh, to Andalusia, it started with a flight into Madrid Airport. Now, our plans had us landing in Madrid, then making the 20-minute schlep um, from Terminal 4. I mean, really, could they have put that terminal any farther out? Uh, and then heading downtown to catch the high-speed Renfe or Rainfee, I don't know how it's pronounced, but the high-speed train from um, from downtown Madrid to Córdoba. So after I booked the tickets online, which I, I will tell you that process is now infinitely easier than two years ago when I first did it, now that Renfee accepts PayPal, 
Actually, I ended up then, I was pleasantly surprised to stumble across a TripAdvisor post saying that the Renfe tickets included a free train ride down to the Puerta Atoa, Atocha, sorry, my, uh, my Spanish bad, uh, the, uh, the downtown train station. I mean, it wasn't the fastest ride. I mean, it was a local train that made sort of four to five stops before the uh, Atocha uh, station. But it was clean and it wasn't beat up. And, and since we were heading downtown during Friday rush hour, it took um, probably the same 30 minutes that Google Maps estimated for, uh, for a cab. And it was cheaper because it was free. And so continuing on that transit theme, Nick Gassman sent a note about comments I made in episode 111 about the proliferation of prepaid cards for subway and mass transit systems. Nick says about the uh, London Underground, hey, you can use your own contactless payment card, Visa, Amex, whatever, without having to buy an Oyster card and get the same rates. You can register the card if you want to, to track spend. The link that uh, Nick then uh, provided to the Tube webpage is kind of similar to the uh, the webpage that the Chicago Transit Authority uh, has on contactless payment. It's you know it feels a bit ambiguous, a um, little grabby, probably because contactless technology is still a little bit young, still a bit ambiguous itself, kind of a moving target for for these transit authorities. Uh, both London and Chicago say they'll also work with NFC Nearfield. Um, uh, Nearfield Communications. Sorry, I, I, uh, I had a uh, I had a three-letter acronym uh, brain stoppage there. But uh, both London and Chicago say they'll work with NFC mobile phones, kind of like the latest Samsung Galaxies, the HTC Ones, the iPhone Six. Uh, I don't know. I think I've just got to get over here in Chicago. I've just got to get over to an L station and give it a try. But, you know, it's probably not the kind of experiment that I want to try and debug during rush hour when there's, I don't know, like a couple hundred hardcore commuters storming sort of the three to four, you know, tap through gates. Seems like it's a little bit more like a midday or weekend morning thing to try out. And then reaching back again to episode 112, where I talked about funding the Indiegogo campaign for the Blue Smart uh, carry-on bag, what they call the first smart connected luggage, complete with a smartphone app that acts as a digital lock, a scale, tracks location, and sounds an alarm if your smart bag wanders off. They, they've gotten huge press. They, you know, they blew through their funding goal by I don't know two thousand, three thousand percent, but now. They got to deliver the bag. And, you know, they've been doing a good job of pushing out updates on the Indiegogo page. And they seem to be sticking right now to their August ship date. You know, we'll see when it gets a little closer, um, which I think would be good for them because competitors are starting to move into their space. I, I tweeted out a link uh, to an Engadget story last week about Samsung and Samsonite partnering up on a line of smart suitcases with functionality that sounds very similar to Blue Smarts. Then I received a press release in the Travel Commons email box from Planet Traveler announcing a Kickstarter campaign for their Space Case One line of smart luggage, which looks like it'll have all the functionality of the Blue Smart Bag plus fingerprint unlock and Bluetooth speakers. <laughs> so as if gate areas aren't noisy enough. Hey, and if you have any thoughts, questions, a story, a comment, a travel tip, the voice of the traveler, send it along. As always, the email address is comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. You can use your smartphone to record and send in an audio comment. You could send a Twitter message to MPCOC. Uh, you can post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page, or you can always go old school and post your thoughts on the website at travelcommons.com. Mm-hmm.
So the only topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is a decade of Travel Commons. It was um, it was 10 years ago today that I recorded the first Travel Commons podcast in the bathroom of the Wardman Park Marriott in northwest Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome to the Travel Commons podcast. My name is Mark Peacock. This is the first Travel Commons podcast, so uh, bear with us. We've got kind of a lousy microphone, and we're going to be trying some new stuff along the way, but I hope you enjoy, uh, I hope you enjoy what we've got to say. It was an interesting mix of topics. Uh, TSA problems in O'Hare, LaGuardia, and uh, Washington National or Reagan National, kind of the the first of many TSA rants over the years. Uh, It was the, I talked about the first sighting of a puffer security screen machine. Don't know if you ever walked through one, but uh, we also talked about their multi-million dollar demise in an episode some years later. And then the final topic, Hungarian roadside prostitutes. Not a topic that I think I've revisited. And it was the first in a long line of what one listener referred to as a potty cast using the tile of hotel bathrooms as a poor man's reverb chamber. From the uh, bathroom of the uh, Wardman Park Marriott. Coming to you from the bathroom of the Camelback Inn. From the bathroom of the uh, LAX Weston. The Mystic Marriott Hotel and Spa in lovely scenic Groton, Connecticut. No hotel bathroom for this podcast. I've been in town all week. From the bathroom of the Residence Inn on Tudor Wharf in Charlestown. From the bathroom, or is it the WC or the toilette? Uh, of the Novotel in downtown Geneva, Switzerland, Budapest, Hungary. From the mobile studio in uh, in suburban Chicago, uh, actually the uh, the '95 Chevy Blazer that uh, that's my airport car. Bathroom of the Orchard Hotel in San Francisco. Bathroom of the Marriott Courtyard in Oldsmar, Florida. The Civic Center Marriott in Durham, North Carolina. In the bathroom of the Stamford, Connecticut Marriott. From the Marriott Courtyard in East Memphis. DoubleTree Club in. San Santa Ana, California, from the Marriott in Memphis, Tennessee, from the bathroom of the Oldsmar, Florida Courtyard, bathroom of the uh, Philadelphia Marriott, coming to you from the bathroom of the Bellagio Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, supposed to be coming to you from the bathroom of the Embassy Suites in Philadelphia, the Marriott Courtyard in Irvine, California, from the quite nice Laguna Hills Marriott in Dana Point, California, the Orlando, Florida Downtown Marriott, the uh, San Mateo, California Marriott, from the Huntington Beach Hilton Resort from the Newport Beach Marriott, the San Francisco Airport Marriott Courtyard in Northwest Houston, Renaissance Madison Hotel in downtown Seattle, Rancho Las Palmas Resort and Spa, Marriott Courtyard in San Francisco's Soma District, Marriott Courtyard in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Gaithersburg, Maryland Marriott from the Newark Liberty Airport Marriott, right smack dab in the middle of some witch's brew of access roads in the center of Newark Airport. The Brooklyn Marriott, by popular demand from the business class toilet, or loo, of a South Africa Airlines Airbus A340, somewhere between New York and Johannesburg, South Africa. God, listening to that, I I guess I now understand why I have lifetime Marriott Platinum status. 
One of the most noticeable changes over the year has been about the USTSA. Early podcasts railed against them, the the security theater, the shoe carnival, liquid bands, and of course, just the random agent power trips. Going through a TSA screening checkpoint at 5 a.m. is never a good time, let alone a 5 a.m. encounter with an overzealous screener. Monday morning in O'Hare, a TSA screener pulls out my bag from the x-ray machine, asks me to open it up. Not, you know, no problem, I say. I, I'm, I'm just trying to survive long enough to make it to the Starbucks stand for a caffeine infusion. She makes a beeline to my toiletry bag, which I'd packed on top of my clothes just so the TSA wouldn't have to go rummaging through everything. She opens up my toiletries, grabs the bottle of Echodent tooth powder, and without looking at it, holds it up and loudly says, you can't take this on. I wait for a moment, let her bask in her triumphant find, and then ask her, why not? It's tooth powder. You guys announce a no solids rule overnight? She turned the bottle around, finally looked at the label, and put it back. No apologies, no whoops, no my bad. Typical. But, you know, with some much-needed customer service training and, more importantly, the introduction of PreCheck, the TSA isn't sort of my podcast pinata that it had been in the first sort of four to five years, especially compared to airport security in places like India and the Philippines. Now, of course, when you travel to a new country, there's always something that can trip you up. Now, I've traveled to India a number of times over the past three to four years, so I've gotten to know some of the eccentricities, like needing a physical printout of your itinerary to even get into an airport terminal and sort of the separate men and women's security lines because every passenger gets wanded and patted down after passing through the metal detector. I mean, I got to tell you that the the Indian security, I mean, it makes TSA pre-check seem like your morning walk has been momentarily interrupted by a couple of nice mall cops. But the Philippines were new to me. The thing that did catch me was the sign at the check-in desk Saturday morning saying portable umbrellas were prohibited in carry-ons. Wait, what? I've carried this bag on three-quarters of the way around the world, and now I have to check it because I got a 10-inch totes umbrella in the front pocket? I mean, did, you know, did the security guys watch too much Batman when they were growing up, and now they're having flashbacks to when the Penguin used a machine gun umbrella? Now, travel technology has been one constant through the Travel Commons decade. One of the New Year's travel resolutions that I posted on the Travel Commons site on the 1st of January was to unpack and repack my briefcase. Five years ago, in February 2006, in episode number 33, I did a bit of an audio tour through my briefcase. Five years later, some, and surprisingly only some, of the contents have changed, but the goal is still the same, optimizing the trade-off between weight and having everything I need. I mean, there's always that desire to have everything you could possibly need to make your briefcase into, I don't know, the Road Warriors version of Batman's utility belt, letting you amaze your traveling companions by pulling out just the right thing to solve any travel problem. Okay, so you're always prepared, but you're always trailing up the rear, either because you've got the heaviest bag or because the TSA is always pulling your bag for secondary screening because all that stuff makes them suspicious. And so back to that balancing act. What do I need all the time, and so it would be a pain to be without, versus what can I buy or borrow for the one or two times I need it? I do think I've just about hit the limit on my electronic gadgets. On my trip to Phoenix this past week, I brought all my portable gadgets, my 
iPhone 4, my iPad 2, my Motorola Droid 2, my new Samsung Galaxy Tab 10.1 running Android 3.1 cornucopia of uh, numbers here well anyhow i brought them all because i needed to load our new mobile application for booth demos at the trade show so along with my macbook air my motorola wireless bluetooth headphones that i use for my morning workouts and then my jabra you know bluetooth mobile phone headset i don't know i felt geez i just felt like i spent all my time charging devices my power strip in my office was completely full all the time as was the travel power strip and most of the outlets in my hotel room. You know, I kind of felt like the gadget version of Mr. Creosote for Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. You know, one more gadget, just a small wafer of a device, and I'll take down the whole power grid for uh, Arizona. And while I've cycled through a number of phones, tablets, laptops, the Bose noise-canceling headphones remain the official headphones of the Travel Commons podcast. You know, there's a bit of a cult in the uh, in the airplane cabin around Bose. Looking around the uh, looking around the first class cabin, and I had scored a rare first class upgrade on my uh, on my way out Tuesday. In the first class cabin, at least a third of the passengers were wearing Bose cans. Indeed, it's not that rare to see guys wearing their Bose into the toilet. Now, I was behind one Bose wearing guy in the toilet line a few weeks back. And after he went in and locked the door, I looked at the flight attendants and said, you know, you may want to step back. I'm not sure if he wore those noise-canceling headphones in there for a reason. They looked at me for a moment and then just broke up laughing, which started again when the guy walked out of the toilet. <laughs> he, looked, he looked a little confused. Food has also been a common theme. Now, my first trip of this year, first trip of 2012, was a big one from Chicago to Beijing, just short of 14 hours each way on United's direct Chicago to Beijing flight. The food was very good, if you like Chinese food, which I do. I mean, we we ate at a lot of different restaurants, all of it good, but at just about every meal, there was one dish that made you go, hmm... Uh, I mean, the first night we ate at the hotel. We had just arrived a couple hours earlier. We're a bit out of it from the time change and the long flight. And so we were just looking for beer and a bit of food, more kind of to keep us awake to try and adjust to the time zone more than any actual hunger. Now, the waitstaff didn't speak much English, but they did have a picture menu, so it kind of helped us, you know, to do sort of the point-and-shoot method of ordering. You know, we'll take one of those, one of those, one of those, one of those, and four beers. So the waiter went away and then came back with a colleague, one who could speak a bit of English. I'm sorry, she said, but we're out of the pickled donkey meat appetizer you chose, but we can substitute the specially spiced donkey meat instead, and then walked off before we could say anything, and then brought back the specially spiced donkey meat, nice sort of little kind of cubes that looked a little like spam. In the next couple of days, over the next couple of days, we learned that donkey meat is a Beijing specialty. Shanghai, no donkey meat. But Beijing, you can get donkey meat. So I I guess we lucked out on our first meal. And, And it was always something. Like when they split the head of the Peking duck and served it on a plate so you could pick at the brains. Or when they gave me a cup of fish soup with kind of slimy water lily stems and a small albino fish staring up at me. 
or at the hot pot restaurant where what I thought was brown tofu was actually some sort of pressed loaf of coagulated duck blood. And at just about every meal, there was a plate of jellyfish. And I've never been accused of being a travel industry cheerleader. The stumble-upon pointer was from um, somebody, Sherlock, uh, I, who described herself just as a woman from Ontario. Now, she very nicely recommended episode number 88. Her comment was, a neat travel site, not as upbeat as some, which actually lined up very nicely with Chris's post. Titled, Where is the Darker Side of Travel? Chris was responding to a listener's letter that suggested his amateur traveler podcast, uh, sugarcoats the travel experience a bit. The listener challenged Chris to bring attention to the darker side of travel. Now, Chris gave what I thought was a good straight-up response that boiled down to, guilty as charged, I'm an optimistic guy, and if you want a podcast about travel from the point of view of how bad it can be, listen to Mark Peacock's travel comments. Mark is a friend and fellow podcaster, but I describe his show as the anti-amateur traveler. But I always try, even if I'm only partially successful, to maintain some perspective. I don't know if it's Zen, with Zen's emphasis on mindful acceptance of the present moment, or jujitsu with its training on using your attacker's energy against him, that sort of bend like a willow, don't break like an oak thinking. But keeping sane in today's business travel is all about finding ways to flow around the obstacles rather than breaking yourself upon them. This, of course, is completely antithetical to the concept of a road warrior, one who controls every aspect of their travel experience, from booking the right fare code to get a free first-class upgrade. You know, but these days, control over your travel plans is a very tenuous thing. A couple of weeks ago, I was settling into my business class seat on United's flight from Chicago to Amsterdam. The plane was full, but not jammed, when I felt and heard a bang. This is not a good thing. We hadn't left the gate yet, so I wasn't too worried. You know, I don't know, perhaps somebody was a bit rough in hooking up the tug or closing a luggage door. However, when I heard the captain key the mic, I started to worry. He called down to the ground crew and asked them, what in the heck were they doing? Now, only then, only then did they tell him that one of the baggage loaders had decided to take a shortcut with his luggage cart and drive under the plane. Unfortunately, he was a poor judge of height and didn't quite make it, hence the bang. The luggage cart hit the fuselage of the 767 hard. The captain called out maintenance, who didn't take long to figure out that the resulting ding in the aluminum skin wasn't going to stand up to a North Atlantic crossing. We packed up our belongings and shuffled back into O'Hare. All the flight attendants were just shaking their heads. None of them had ever heard of anything like this before. Now, I was traveling with a 24-year-old colleague. Now He was an experienced leisure traveler, and, but was new to international business travel. We left the plane with no known departure time, no idea how we were going to get from Chicago to Amsterdam. What do we do now, he asked, his pupils dilating just a bit. Do we stay? Do we go home? Do we head over to the international terminal? Nope. We go grab a sandwich and a beer and give United an hour to figure this thing out. Travel tip, beer makes this Zen thing a whole lot easier.
Okay, that's it. That's the end of Travel Commons podcast number 115. I hope you all enjoyed this little stroll down memory lane, and I hope you decide to stay subscribed. I've done three other anniversary episodes in the past. Uh, episode number 27 was the best of 2005. That was the uh, the first year that we had Travel Commons. It was kind of a year-end review. Uh, episode number 40 was the first-year retrospective, so look back over the first 12 months of Travel Commons. And number 74 was a four year retrospective and quite honestly i think the best of all of them podcast subscribers if you subscribe to the uh, the rss feed or the itunes feed uh, you'll find um, these three episodes these three anniversary episodes sort of in the bottom of the podcast feed but i'll also put links to them in the show notes so you don't have to go scrounging around the archives if you actually you're interested in them i also may put a link to episode 74 the four-year look back on the uh, travel commons facebook page Hey, as always, check out the show notes for music links. Again, as I mentioned before, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. And as always, if you have a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along, text your audio file to comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com, to mpeacock on Twitter, put them on the Travel Commons Facebook wall, or post them on our website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who has sent in emails, tweets, posted comments on the website. And most of all, thanks to uh, everyone who has kind of hung around, if not for 10 years, then eight years, then seven years, whatever it is. Thank you for listening. And uh, until until I fire it up again, travel safe. And thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye. His hill, strange bed in a lonely motel. But one thing needs my mind the warm woman that I left behind. From California to Carolina, she calls me up and there's nothing finer. And when the tears start falling, crying into the phone. Within my heart you find my pictures